The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, the year is 1936, and something strange is brewing in Prague, percolating first in the mind of a Czech novelist named Karl Čapek, who, as it happened, coined the term robot in one of his early stories. And then this strangeness is brewing on the page of his new novel, War with the Newts. It's a farcical yet deadly serious tale about an alternate history of the 1930s, in which the Western world discovers, exploits, educates, arms, and is ultimately overthrown by a species of highly intelligent, three-foot-tall salamanders. Written by this man, Karl Chopik, as the Czech Republic was facing annexation by Nazi Germany. Podcast producer Ian Koss has loved this book for years, along with Chopik's other works, and he feels a personal connection. His grandmother grew up in Prague during the 1930s. We'll talk to him about Karl Chopik, his trip to Prague with his grandmother to explore that world further, and his new project in partnership with Radiotopia's The Truth, a long-running audio fiction series. The project is called simply Newts. Carl Chopik and Ian Koss, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. My birthday is over and I am back, baby. <laughs> Jack's back. Ready to go, ready to bring you some more podcasting goodness. This show today is a fascinating one. Carl Chopik, if you've heard of him, it might be as the guy who invented the word robot. That's pretty enduring. That's quite a legacy. He was writing in the 1930s and before. That great era, the 1930s, for science fiction. And he was one of the good ones. The artists, the real writers who elevated the genre above mere... Rockets and Robots, or what was Margaret Atwood's phrase? Talking squids in outer space. That was her rejection of it as a label for her, anyway. Reviewers are, are often kind of casual about science fiction and fantasy fiction, lumping the two together and throwing in their dystopias and alternative realities and so on. I'm not sure. I'm not... I'm not so sure Atwood meant to dismiss the genre, although that description of it does seem to carry a little bit of haughtiness with it. She was trying to stake out some territory for herself, for her own project and goals and endeavors and techniques. She preferred the term speculative fiction for her writings. She says that the science fiction label belongs on books with things in them that we can't yet do such as going through a wormhole in space to another universe. Speculative fiction, on the other hand, means a work that employs the means already to hand, such as DNA identification and credit cards, and that takes place on planet Earth. That was roughly a quote. That makes sense as a distinction, and I can understand why Atwood would care about which shelf she was placed on or how readers approached her work or how critics would approach them too. But I think she would agree that both speculative fiction and science fiction are at their best 
when they reach for the targets that the best literary fiction provides for itself as well. Well Well-developed characters whom we care about, who make difficult choices with consequences, who have interesting relationships with one another, in prose that doesn't traffic in cliches and ideas that crackle in stories that draw us in. Speculative fiction, science fiction, fantasy, romance novels, westerns, steampunk, fan fiction, literature, all of it. Does it make our spine tingle, as Nabokov might say? Does it make our mind race and our chest swell, I would add, or my eyes water? I have to add that now that I confessed my weepy state in the Roger Ebert episode. <laughs> Cry, baby Jack. Oh, my defenses are down. I'm as vulnerable as a jellyfish or a squid, but perhaps one here in the ocean and not a talking one in outer space. Our subject today could not really object to the labels. His book took place on Earth, but it did have some talking lizards. We're going to talk about all of that with Ian Koss, our guest today, and then we will hear a trailer for the podcast Newts. I can't remember how much Ian and I go into the factual background of Mr. Chopik in our conversation, so let me just give you a quick thumbnail sketch. He's not exactly a household name. Chopik was born in the mountains of Bohemia in 1890. His father was a doctor at a textile factory. He was devoted to His community, the father was, co-founding a local museum and serving on the town council. Chopik's mother suffered from depression, but in spite of that, she was a great devotee of stories and storytelling, collecting local songs and legends and folklore. There were three siblings, Joseph, a painter, Helena, a pianist and writer, and Carl, the youngest, was himself a writer. Carl got into some hot water as a young student, when he got involved in what he later called a, quote, very non-murderous anarchist society, end quote. This was a great age for modernism as it seeped its way into literature and the visual arts. Chopik was a fan of Cubism and wrote about contemporary art and literature and philosophy. In the teens, he couldn't serve in World War I due to spinal problems. Instead, he became a journalist and he and his brother Joseph took their hand at writing plays. His first big success was R.U.R., in which robots take over a factory. He wrote stories, too, and he became an outspoken anti-fascist. He was the president of the Penn Writers Club, the Czechoslovak chapter of it, I mean, and the Gestapo declared him public enemy number two. He could have sought exile in England, but he refused... And then, on Christmas Day in December of 1938, he died of pneumonia. His brother Joseph was later arrested and died in a concentration camp. Chopik was a science fiction writer. Before that was really its own separate thing. It was all kind of lumped in together as fiction or novels back then or plays. He was one of the pioneers who helped spawn science fiction as a full-fledged genre. He wrote science fiction when it served his needs, but he wasn't limited just to that. He also wrote detective stories and other kinds of works. His background in philosophy worked its way into his fiction as 
He tended to ask questions not just about politics, as you might expect, but about the nature of the world, the nature of knowledge, and the purpose of the universe. You might compare him with Kafka, who, after all, was just seven years older than Chopik and who also lived in Prague. Among their differences, however, it's notable that Kafka wrote in German and Chopik was one of the great advancers of the Czech language as a tool for fiction. In that, he was perhaps closer to Jaroslav Hasek, author of The Good Soldier Schweck. Hasek was also seven years older than Chopik, but he wrote in Czech, and he shared a similar approach to hard-edged satirical humor. Both Kafka and Hasek died early in the 1920s and did not live to see or comment upon the rise of Nazi Germany, as Chopik did, sometimes directly and other times with restraint or through literary guises. Okay, I think that's good for now. Let's bring out our expert to tell us more about this unusual man with this active imagination and strong sense of shared humanity, and about, perhaps, his best work, War with the Newts. Ian Koss on Karl Chopik. After this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is radio producer Ian Koss, who works with the Public Radio Exchange, also known as PRX. He's here today to talk about a new fiction series inspired by War with the Newts, a novel by Czech writer Karl Chopik. Ian Koss, welcome to the History of Literature. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So usually I don't have to start with this question, but in this case, I think it's appropriate. Who was Karl Chopik? So Karl Chopik is considered to be one of the great writers who worked in the Czech language hmm. and also a really important pioneer in the, the genre of kind of speculative fiction and dystopian fiction, even though he's almost barely known to most readers and certainly most English readers today. Mm-hmm. 
if you have heard that name Chopek, if it's ringing a, a little bit of a distant bell, it's probably because he has a very specific claim to fame, which is that he coined the term robot. Um, so this was in a play he wrote in 1920 called Rossum's Universal Robots. And it was this speculative fiction, this imaginative tale about uh, these business people who create these. Uh, they're essentially humans, but they have no souls and they're they're used as basically cheap workers and what they were called as robots. And actually that word comes from a Czech word. And that play actually became quite famous. And that term really caught on. Obviously, we still use it today. And so he's remembered for that. But that play about robots was really very early in his career. And he went on to do so much more um, novels. He wrote journalism. He wrote short stories all through the 1920s and 30s. And so in some ways, you know, it's a shame that that early work of his is the one that's, um, you know, that has the most acclaim and recognition, even though there's there's so much more to his body of work. And so part of the, you know, what we're hoping to do with this audio series, this podcast we're launching is to kind of shine a fresh light on one of his last works, which is this book called War with the Newts. Okay. well, before we get to that book, let's fill in Chopik a little bit more. Uh, so he was born, I understand, in 1890 in what was then Austria-Hungary. He died in 1938 in Prague. And you say he was a, a, a pioneer in the world of speculative fiction. What, and, and we, we know he wrote this play about robots. Where does he stand in terms of science fiction or speculative fiction? What types of things was he writing about and, mm. and where was he different and where, what tradition was he fitting into? Yeah. Well, let me just first say, I mean, taking in Chopek's life, the times that he lived in, I think it's it's important context to kind of frame his life historically. You mentioned, you know, he's born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, he dies basically on the eve of World War Two. But his really productive, creative years sit in this incredible 20 year period in the history of what is now the Czech Republic, when it was an independent democratic state. So basically from the end of World War One until the beginning of World War Two, from 1918 to 1938, you have this flowering of liberal democracy and arts and creativity in you know what was then Czechoslovakia, what is now the Czech Republic. And Chopik was really a leading figure in that moment. It, it's a fascinating moment, and it's one that I'm personally very interested in. Um, my own family, you know, traces its roots back to the Czech Republic. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother grew up in Prague in the 1930s, and so in this same time and place when Chopik was writing. And I think part of what Chopik offers in his writing, which, as I mentioned, is really wide ranging, is just a fascinating perspective on that interwar period that does not come from the, a location of great power. It comes from this kind of peripheral state that was very recently carved off of this, you know, historic empire and was trying to kind of, you know, find its footing as a as a nation, as a democracy, as a, a cultural um, center. And Chopik was really an important part of that. Mm. We often think of speculative fiction or science fiction or satire in general as being a way, an outlet for people who are 
living in oppressive times or yeah. or circumstances. But we also know from the examples of, for example, the United States in the 1950s and 60s, that it can also be in periods that other people would consider to be periods of flowering and tranquility. But people are warning about things that are on the horizon. Is that what we see with Chopik, that he's saying, here's what could go wrong if we don't curb these certain tendencies or or watch out for the the wolf at the door, so to speak? Yeah. And um, to your question about sort of where he fits within the world of sci-fi, um, Chopik was, he was definitely not an escapist in any way. He was r- very much grounded in reality, in politics. As I mentioned, he wrote journalism. Uh, he was actually, he was friends, I guess, to an extent with uh, Thomas Masaryk, who was the president of Czechoslovakia. And so, yeah, for him, you know, in my reading of it, his fiction is a way of of commenting on reality, engaging with it. He was, I'm trying to think how to, how to put this, but in what I've read of Chopek and about Chopek, he's somebody who had a really rich appreciation for just observation of the everyday. He wrote this incredible book about gardening that just sort of follows a whole year in the life of a home gardener. He wrote a book about his dog, the life of his puppy. He would write these essays about tradespeople and the work that they did. Um, he was really fascinated in just observing life and the, the details of life. And so even when he creates these wildly imaginative tales like War with the Newts, it always has this real kind of grounding and an appreciation for the human condition and Mm. human nature. And also, crucially, I think, in a kind of optimism and belief Mm. in human nature. He is often labeled as a kind of pioneer of dystopian literature because, um, you know, Spoiler alert, War with the Newts kind of ends with the end of the world, as does uh, his play Rossum's Universal Robots. They're tales with uh, unhappy endings for the, you know, the human characters within them. But they're also stories that that kind of tap into, you know, the potential for good within people. And in his political writings and his nonfiction writings, you really get that, too. He, you know, he really he believed in the project of humanity. He believed in um, the idea of European peace and unity. He was in many ways an idealist, but one who also very clearly recognized, you know, how quickly things could go wrong. And yeah, I think his fiction very much does that. Mm -hmm. And as we know, that is not always the case, that uh, there can be science fiction writers who are very optimistic about progress and who have that kind of a an attitude about human beings and yeah. there are others who really come at it from a position of of misanthropy and saying everything is awful and it's going to get worse because look I'm going to show you what humans are truly like so it's interesting I understand that there's a uh he was nominated several times for the Nobel Prize he didn't win but there is a prize that is given in his name, and it's for humanist writing. It's not for, it's not given by scientists or anything like that. It's it's uh, a prize that's awarded for humanist writing. Yeah, you know, like I said, he was really, um, he was very well recognized within his own lifetime, uh, and I think the the nominations for the Nobel Prize speak to that, which is part of the reason it's it's so interesting that his his recognition after his life has declined. Um, mm. Something I read 
recently was that, you know, he and Kafka were contemporaries and uh, they're both Czech. You know, Kafka also lived in Prague. Uh, Kafka died earlier. He died in the 20s. And in their own lifetimes, Chopik was more famous than Kafka. Hmm. Um, you know, in in the 1920s, after Penn was founded, you know, the International mm -hmm. Literary Organization, Chopik was invited to London in 1924 to give a, an address to the members of Penn. He met H.G. Wells, Robert Shaw, Thomas Mann. In fact, I read recently that H.G. Wells asked Chopik to be the director, the next director of Penn after he stepped down and Chopik declined. So he really was an international literary figure at that time in the 20s and 30s. And I think from what I understand, part of the reason why his legacy has not endured in the same way that Kafka's has is that Kafka wrote in German and Chopik wrote in Czech. And that in itself was a, a deliberate choice. You know, Chopik was someone who studied German and English and French and read in those languages and probably could have written in other languages. But I, I think there was probably a deliberate choice there to to write in his native language. Perhaps an unfortunate result of that is that his work is perhaps seen as somehow more provincial or um, less universal. Mm. And yet that wasn't always the case. I, as you mentioned, he was... He was quite well known in his own lifetime, and I read a, a quote by Arthur Miller, who was looking back and said in the 1930s, quote, there was no writer like him, prophetic assurance mixed with surrealistic humor and hard-edged social satire. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's really strange and fascinating. And I mean, I think part of the unfortunate reason, too, is that that 20-year window I mentioned, this flowering of kind of, you know, artistic culture and freedom of ideas came to a hard close in 1938, mm -hmm. you know, with uh, the occupation by the by Nazi Germany, which was just crushing to Chopek from everything I've read. You know, he, he felt that as the most just sort of intense betrayal by this international community that he was really well connected to. And in fact, he resigned from Penn in 1936, around that time after the Munich Accords, when the Allies essentially sold out Czechoslovakia to the Germans. After that period, and then, uh, you know, after Czechoslovakia became part of the Soviet Union, his books were largely suppressed within Czechoslovakia because he was seen as a kind of dangerous figure to authority. And so there there was no kind of natural home for that body of work, even though I think today in the Czech Republic, it's considered, you know, it's taught in schools, it's part of curricula, but for a long time, it was not given the attention it deserves. I also wonder if in the 40s and 50s and 60s, uh, especially for English-speaking readers in the United States or in the United Kingdom, they might be looking for a different set of concerns than anything that would have happened before the Holocaust and before World War II and before the Cold War. You know, all of the all of the science fiction and all of the speculative fiction and so on that that seems to have been on everyone's mind would be using uh, the Soviet Union as a metaphor or using the Holocaust as the example of here's when things go wrong. And it might be that we just needed some some decades of distance before we could start to appreciate, well, here's what people were warning of in the 30s. Right. Um, right. Even people who didn't have knowledge of how bad things were about to get. I think that's absolutely right. Um, 
and the timing of his death and the end of his body of work is really is really crucial there that he did not live to see world war ii and he did not live to see the cold war and so it, i think you're right that it's tempting to think that he does not speak to those times or that you know that he is sort of removed you know he's he's not a contemporary figure he's he belongs to this interwar period when in fact i think his fiction speaks with like startling clarity to our own times and it's it's been kind of bizarre working on this adaptation of his book in the midst of you know all the events of 2022 uh the invasion of ukraine uh this the way the whole kind of idea of european peace has been turned on its head and European unity and, you know, this idea of a Cold War and, you know, the geopolitics of Eastern Europe. Following all that with Chopik's work in the back of my mind has been really interesting because I think there are there are so many parallels between that time and our own and ways in which Chopik's perspective on those events is very relevant today. Mm. Okay, let's take a quick break and come back with Ian Koss. And in particular... We will talk about Chapik's book and Ian's adaptation of War with the Newts. Okay, we are back. Ian, how did you become aware of the works of Carl Chopik? I was introduced to Carl Chopik about 10 years ago. There are a couple things that happened at the same time that I think drew my interest. One is that I met a dear friend of mine named Sam J. Gold, who is my collaborator on this audio series. Sam is a theater artist and puppeteer. And when I met him, he had just returned from living in Prague for a period of months studying Czech marionettes. And he was the one who first introduced me to War with the Newts. He had been studying, as I said, with this puppeteer, and he had picked up a copy of Rossum's Universal Robots, that early play of Chopik's that I mentioned. Because like many people, that was the sort of one reference point he had for Chopik. And uh, he was reading that book. One of his teachers saw him with it and said something to the effect of, oh, that's nice. But if you really want to get into Chopik, you should read this story, War with the Newts. Mm. There's a, a great Times piece about Carl Chopik that I recommend. It's called In Praise of Carl Chopik. And that writer basically describes Rossum's Universal Robots as sort of like a rehearsal for War with the Newts. It's very similar themes, but they're much more fully realized in this later book. So this friend of mine, Sam, he was the one who first introduced me to that book. Around the time I met Sam, I also visited Prague for the first time with my grandmother who had grown up there. Mm. And we were able to, you know, to go around the city, see places where she had lived, meet friends who she had grown up with. And so I think that time and place was also very much in my mind uh, and the idea of this book that came from that same moment and was in many ways an attempt to make sense of that moment through this fantastical story very much gripped me. 
Uh, and so when my friend Sam introduced me to the book, I read it. I actually started, I wrote some uh, music inspired by it. Uh, one of my first reactions to reading the book was to write a song that is actually now part of the audio adaptation that we're, we're creating. And it just became this kind of never ending conversation between my friend and I about this story and what we could do with it. And that has led us now, you know, 10 years later to doing this podcast. Was your grandmother familiar with War with the Newts? So my grandmother read Chopek in school. She read his book that's called Deshenka or The Life of a Puppy. I don't think she has read War with the Newts. But she was very familiar with Chopek, yeah. Yeah. What a trip. Uh, I mean, was it just the two of you, or was this something your whole family did? It was just the two of us. It was the summer after I graduated from college. And uh, my grandmother has always been, uh, as she describes it, she goes through moods. You know, she'll have periods where she doesn't really want to do much, and then she'll go through these periods where she really wants to get out and do stuff. And the, right after I graduated from college, she was kind of seized with this desire to go back to the place where she grew up. And uh, I was sort of at a moment where I could drop everything and disappear for a few weeks. And so, yeah, we just went, the two of us. And like so many people of her generation, she's kept in touch. You know, she's a letter writer. Mm-hmm. And so she has these people who she... What's crazy about it is she spent these formative years in Prague from about 1935 to 1945 in the run up to and then all through World War II. But then she left. So she hasn't lived there in a long time, but she's you know stayed in touch with people she went to elementary school with. Uh, we were able to go visit those people. And just for me to be able to kind of understand her story and that that place that she came from and that our family comes from was really very important. It's something I think about a lot. Right. And I'm guessing that reading Chapek helps you put that in perspective as well. It gives you some insight into uh, what their society was like at that time. It, it does. It makes me want to read more, to like delve more into Czech literature. I mean, I've read a certain amount of Russian literature, but I, there's obviously so much more to, you know, the whole Eastern European world and sphere. But something I've observed in Chapek that I don't think is unique to Chopic is a certain brand of wry humor. Mm. A, you know, that's a little dark, but a little, but doesn't take itself too, too seriously. I think I see reflected in, you know, in perhaps other literature of that place and, and perhaps within my own family too. You know, I, I do think there's, there's something interesting about that perspective of being at the center of these, you know, epic world events but also being this kind of small country that was in many ways a pawn and, you know, this sort of peripheral player. There's something to that perspective of being at the crossroads of these empires and, you know, it to some degree at the whim of them that uh, I think comes through in Chopik's work, this sort of humor, but also um, a very critical lens on the world. And Kafka might be an extreme example of it, but there's also Milan Kundera and others who are often praised for that same kind of quality, that there's yeah. a, a certain wry outlook or a, it's not absurdist exactly, but it's kind of like it includes politics and historic events, but you're you're kind of on the fringe of it or you're, yep. you're kind of uh, 
pushed around by the major currents of yeah. historical trends. And again, I think Chopek sits in that lineage, but also I feel like what sets him apart a little bit is this real deep belief in people. Everything I read about him uh, and everything I read of him, it's sort of, that's this thread that kind of runs through it is this like underlying faith mm. in the goodness, the basic goodness of people. If we can just get all the the ideologies and isms and all that stuff out of the way, you know, if we can set that aside, like underneath people are basically good. Before we turn to war with the newts and really dive into that, I'm wondering if you happen to know what Chopik was reading. Was it Jules Verne and H.G. Wells or was he can you fit him into a tradition of writers that he might have admired or been emulating or was he just creating this out of whole cloth? I don't know for sure. And I haven't found any sources on this. I do know that he was very well read. As I mentioned, he was an active member of Penn. He corresponded with literary figures. Um, he created translations of other works into Czech. For example, in the midst of World War One, which he was uh, he was exempted from military service by uh, his physical condition. But he published a collection of translations of French poetry in the midst of World War One, which for him was a essentially a, a political act or an act of peace. You know, because he was part he was living in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was at war with France. And he he published this collection of French poetry. So he was definitely very well read. But then when you read some of his essays and I've I've been working my way through this collection of newspaper columns he wrote. They're called columns, but they almost remind me more of like if you read The New Yorker, sort of like the mm. talk of the town section. They're these little vignettes, and they're quite whimsical in a way that most newspaper columns are not. And I, there's one of them I remember reading where he really saw the role of the writer as someone who should exist among the people. And he saw himself as a kind of populist figure and did not want to be, you know, to just exist in this rarefied, you know, literati, intellectual milieu so he was someone who who read widely, but also just talked to people and learned their stories and observed the world. I think those sort of everyday inspirations were just as important to his work as, you know, books by H.G. Wells or Huxley or or other contemporaries. So, yeah, hard to say. OK, so let's turn now to the world of underwater potential slaves <laughs> and tell us about his final book war with the newts what is it about war with the newts i think of it as an alternate history it's set roughly in the 1930s which is when it was written but it introduces a key difference into world events which is that humanity encounters a species of newt that is about three feet tall and can walk on two legs and has good manual dexterity and is actually quite intelligent. Hmm. Um, and the encounter with the species of newts, as you can imagine, kind of changes everything. One of the wonderful things about Chopic is he has this ability to just take a premise and, and it could be a totally absurd premise, but to then take it incredibly seriously and really run with it wherever it takes him. And that's the way I think of War with the Newts. 
it begins, as I said, with this idea, what if humanity were not the only intelligent species on this planet? Mm. What would happen? And then he takes it to places that I just think very few writers would. So, yes, of course, it it changes, um, you know, commerce and business. Suddenly there's, you know, these newts are put to work harvesting oysters and collecting pearls, constructing underwater infrastructure and dams. But they also work their way into popular culture. And there are television shows. There's music. There are religious movements. There are philosophical debates. There are questions of rights and citizenship. There are there's militarization of newts. And it kind of the whole book sort of spirals outward and outward in ways that are just totally unpredictable. Mm. And I don't want to give away the ending too, too much, but it, it sort of ultimately leads to a point of crisis where, you know, these newts that humanity has been uh, exploiting in many ways there is a turning point where the newts kind of recognize themselves and their own position in power and the whole thing suddenly becomes perilous. Mm. Well, he would have had as examples uh, not only slavery and its legacy, but colonization. And I would guess that for someone writing in the 1930s, you know, he's he's basically writing in a from a position where Europeans have created these empires all over the world and the way that they've treated the people that they've encountered there is probably something that could uh, fill in for Chopik, you know, how humanity might treat other humanity. Right. Yeah, I think Newts can be read as a commentary, as a sort of post-colonial critique, or I mean, in the 1930s, we're not post-colonial at all. Uh, I should say Newts can be read as a kind of critique of colonialism, of empire. I say that with some hesitation, though, because I think one of the things that's interesting about Chopek is that his books, they are very powerful as kind of uh, parables in some ways, but they don't they're not neat parables. Um, mm. And this is something that um, I'll kind of uh, just to give credit here, I'm parroting something that I read in a, a really wonderful essay about Chopek by a writer named Ben Dolnick. And uh he gives us a wonderful analysis that I think about a lot that basically, you know, it's tempting to read War with the Newts as a direct analogy for something like, oh, the Newts are Nazis or the Newts are colonies and, and to sort of try and decode it in that way. But ultimately, the Newts are Newts. And there's a grounding in the specificity of that that I think is very important to the story. It's not like, say, you know, if you've read Animal Farm. You know, by George Orwell, once you kind of crack the code, you figure out, oh, the pig is Stalin. Then suddenly the whole book kind of clicks into place. War with the Newts really doesn't function like that. You can kind of read these connections with current events, read the critique or the satire. But ultimately, the story plays by its own rules and the Newts are truly newts right and yet what you've said and what i've read about it is it's called prescient and so in what ways is it anticipating things that later came to pass yeah i think this book is deeply prescient on a number of levels well there's one very obvious example which is that a key plot point as the book unfolds is basically overpopulation mm. of newts and the need for more aquatic habitat, and the newts eventually start flooding the earth. 
So there's, uh, in a weird way, the book can be read, and this is something that Chopek wouldn't have thought about at all, but it can really be read as a kind of uh, ecological criticism about, you know, humanity's relationship with the earth, uh, natural resources, and like I said, literally ending with the flooding of the earth, which uh, has obvious resonance with our own era of climate change. Yeah, I totally see that. I thought you were going to head into the world of Lebensraum and and Nazi uh, annexation of nearby countries in order to march into them and say that they just needed more living space, they needed more elbow room, and so on. Yeah. No, I mean, and that, uh, I think one of the key themes throughout the book is nationalism, which makes sense given that it was written in 1935 and 1936. And I think Chopek does very... Uh, cleverly and clearly anticipate the extremes that that to which that will go. Um, he has this whole section in the book in which Germany creates its own militarized Ubernut, which it's going to use to, you know, subjugate neighboring countries. So, you know, he was clearly, uh, you know, in 1935 reading the, the writing on the wall there. But I think that, um, you know, beyond those sort of obvious connections there's something about to me this uh this sort of a this sort of radical transformation of the world that comes about through newts you know through the the introduction of this intelligent worker class essentially that um also speaks in a weird way to like the effects of artificial intelligence the internet this feeling of acceleration that if you took our world and introduced this other being into it, how rapidly that that could sort of affect everything, you know, not just one sector or not just one country, but could really just change, you know, the fundamental nature of human relations yeah. and uh, business, politics, society, everything. I think that's part of what he captures so interestingly in this book. You know, there are whole sections of it that are presented more or less as primary source documents. You get newspaper clippings, scientific articles, meetings from business notes. He does this very textured kind of world building that gives the whole story a kind of vivid realism, even as it's in many ways outlandish. I Again, I just find really thought-provoking mm. um, and so, clever. So how, I would imagine as someone who's adapting this for audio... Uh, you would be able to really borrow from dialogue to the extent that it's there and plot points would be easy for you. But something like narrative tone and humor and irony and satire that's coming out of the prose itself, how were you able to to capture that for your audio version? Do you have a voiceover narration or is there enough dialogue that that, that, that can carry the day or... How do you what what were you struggling with and how did you overcome it when you were putting this together for an audio version? Yeah, it's been a really interesting process because I think there are elements of this book that lend itself really well to audio adaptation. And then there are parts that we really had to rethink for our version. The first thing I would say is that our series, we describe it as inspired by War with the Newts. Uh, in fact, our, it also has a different title. Our show is simply called newts which is a deliberate choice because it is we're creating an original work that draws on the idea and sort of spirit of this book but takes a lot of liberties with it um one of the ways in which 
the book, I think, lends itself really well to this format is that the narrator has a real voice and character in the book. This is another quality of a lot of Chopek's writing. And I think a, some other Eastern European and Russian literature, too, where the narrator is not simply a kind of passive, omniscient character or voice. Rather, they are they're kind of flawed and subjective and so in some ways emotionally involved in the story itself. And so even though Chopek's narrator is not named, we don't know who they are or what perspective they're writing from. The narrator nonetheless has a real presence and character to it, if that makes sense. Mm. And in fact, there's a wonderful kind of a meta fictional moment that happens at the, the very end of the book. There's a whole chapter called The Author Speaks to Himself, in which Chopek or the the author, the narrator, whoever, you know, is telling us the story kind of uh, has this whole debate over how the story should end. All right. Um, <laughs> And and there are other moments sort of like that in the book that uh, that give, as I said, this sort of narrative character to it. And that lends itself very nicely to audio where the narrator is often a real, you know, the, the voice who's telling the story is a really important part of the storytelling. So our, our series does have a narrator. We've made the choice to actually situate the narrator within the story in a way that Chopik doesn't. Uh, we've taken a character who exists in the book as a sort of a relatively small character and given them the role of narrator. The story is told from the perspective of someone who is living it. Mm. So it sounds like listeners can be readers and vice versa. People who enjoy the book uh, will find something new in the radio project and people who listen to and enjoy the radio project will enjoy going back and checking out War with the Newts. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of differences. And I think I'll be very curious to hear what people who know the book think of the series, because as I said, we, we've taken some liberties. But I think also people who listen to the podcast will be interested to go back to the source material because there's so much there. I think in terms of the text itself, one of the decisions we made early on was that there would not be any direct text from the book in the podcast. Every word of dialogue, every word of narration is original to the audio series. And I think there are a couple reasons for that. One is that we're only engaging with this source material through translations, right? So there's already this degree of remove and this degree to which as a non-Czech speaker can never truly understand the quality of his prose. And from what I've, I'm told and what I've read, he is revered as a stylist of the Czech language and that there is a quality to his Czech prose that cannot be reproduced in translation. So given that fact, we decided to just sort of take, you know, we had both read the book. We were familiar with it rather than sort of like write our adaptation with the book open right next to us and be like, OK, this happens. We got to put this in there. This happens. We got to put this in there. It was more of a, a process of. We know the story. We love the story. Let's just tell it ourselves in our own voices and create and, you know, take the characters and try to evoke the spirit, you know, and this the sentiment of it that what we find so special about the book without leaning on the language of the translations, which are ultimately just that translations. 
Mm. Okay, well, the novel is called War with the Newts, and the radio project is Newts. Ian Koss, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature, or almost do it. My thanks to Ian Koss for being here, but don't go away, not just yet. We have some special bonus content for you, the trailer for Newts, the audio fiction series that Ian has put together. will be played in just a moment. Let me tell you where you can find this. I'll have a few links in our show notes as well, but your one-stop shopping is at newtspod.com. That's N-E-W-T-S-P-O-D.com. The podcast is also on Apple and Spotify and Stitcher and other places. Should be pretty much everywhere you get this one, I would think. And Ian's on Twitter at Ian underscore Koss. That's Koss, C-O-S-S. And on Instagram at Ian Koss, all one word. Okay, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. And now presenting the trailer for Newts. Welcome to the Science Hour with David Sanderson. I'm David Sanderson. Here at the Berlin Salamander Lab, scientists are making exciting breakthroughs in newt physiology. Yeah, if you cut off a newt's tail, it will grow back in a week. If you cut off a newt's leg, it will grow back in a month. If you cut off a newt's head, it's dead. PRX and the Truth Podcast present. What was that? <laughs> an audio drama with original music in six parts. Show yourself! Inspired by the pioneering science fiction of Carl Chopek. Uh, well, that ain't no devil. That's a newt. <laughs> share that dream with the world. A newt for every man, woman, and child. You foresee no consequences for teaching a newt how to engage in lethal markmanship? I specialize in interspecies arbitration. Shall we begin? In a first, newt dock workers have waddled off the job. Is it true you met a real newt? <laughs> Answering me now. Well, that'd spoil all the fun. <laughs> Take that thing. Wait that day. Rubbish! Shouldn't it be people who understand them and love them like we do? I mean, just look at these newts. But there's only one newt for me. Honey, honey, I know. It's like she doesn't even need them all. This isn't about me. My queen. Honey, it's disgusting. Praise be unto them. Search for newts wherever you listen to podcasts. The first episode drops June 7th.